You're listening to Napa Register Radio. I'm your host, Yusef Baig. Welcome back. This is episode two of the official podcast of the Napa Valley Register and its sister publications, the Weekly Calistogan, St. Helena Star, and the American Canyon Eagle. Uh, that's in no particular order, just kind of how they came out of my head, but now that I think about it, that's also geographically going from north to south in the valley, so that's cool. Um, anyways, uh, if you listen to episode one, you're in a special place in my heart, and I appreciate you coming back for another one. Uh, if you missed it, you can find it wherever you likely found this. Uh, we're on iTunes, which is dope. We're on NapaValleyRegister.com. Um, our social media feeds on Facebook, Twitter, um, pretty easy to find us. We're also on SoundCloud. If you see me in the streets, I mean, I'll even text it to you just as long as you're finding it. Um, I hope that you are. I'm glad that you are, and I appreciate you listening. And uh, after that little slice of humble pie, I also would like to just admit some of the mistakes and errors that were made in the production of the first episode. Um, Specifically, my conversation with Marty James, our sports editor here, he came on and uh, we had a great discussion about Napa Valley Unified School District and its athletic teams moving from the Sac Joaquin section to the North Coast section. And um, anyways, I mean, there was just a huge drop off in quality and I'm, I'm really bummed out about that. And um, you know, it's I'm working with technology and an audio program and shouldering the load of this podcast and it's so um, I'm kind of learning as I go. You know, it's a lot of this stuff is um, what's the expression? It's it's Greek to me because I guess Greek is like a very misunderstood language and culture. I, I don't know. Either way, um, I can guarantee you that every episode will be better and get better. And uh, I think this episode is the embodiment of that idea, just improvement. And um, I'm really excited about it. Um, so let's go ahead and pivot to it. Um, I also kind of alluded in the first episode at this stage of every episode, you'll get kind of a quick index and rundown of what to expect. Um, so, uh, in this episode, our main segment is with editor in chief, Sean Scully. Um, he is, uh, I guess if you're not familiar with that kind of unusual title, he is, uh, the leader of our editorial department. He is, uh, the highest member of our journalism staff. And so, um, he's got a great background at covering politics at the local and national level and you know kind of so I wanted to have him on and just talk about that journey and uh, kind of also ask him some questions about what it's like in terms of access and what he thinks about the the war with the press going on between Trump and and the national media and so it's a it's a really thoughtful great discussion Uh, really excited to share that with you guys and then also uh, wine reporter Henry Lutz stopped by Uh, we talked about just the heavy rains and you know, kind of what it means for grape growing and how winemakers look at that. And, and then later on uh, in the sports segment, um, I'm going to talk about Pacific Union College and their men's basketball team and just the incredible ride that they went on. And I know we're a little bit kind of after the fact on their season, but I'd love just talking about that story and putting it out there for people who just haven't got to hear about it. And uh, at the end of the show, I'm also going to kind of do something a little different and uh, bring my column that runs in print and online to life. It's called Other Side of the Fence. Um, it's, you know, I'm a big guy for nuance. Like that's a really important thing to me. I feel like, uh, a lot of times nuanced opinions don't get their time of day, just in terms of the, the, the discussions we have, the way the rhetoric kind of dominates things. And so, um, nuance is huge for me. And so that's kind of what my column does. And specifically it, it takes, you know, concepts and things happening in sports and kind of draws them to a bigger picture and, and a bigger societal and macro level. So it's, um, so I'm going to talk about just a little bit about, uh, the Raiders leaving Oakland and kind of also just more so what it what it kind of triggers within me as a as a sports writer and someone who's also just a journalist and kind of how I view uh, just the entire sports world itself sometimes so I um, hope you stick around for that 
Uh, let's go ahead and jump into the episode. Here is episode two. Let's get some music. So if you're a Napa Valley Register subscriber, you're probably aware of just how insane the month of March was um, in terms of just the news and all the different things that happened here in the Valley from the police shooting to the Napa High hazing incident, both of those which I'll get to in a second. Um, uh, just kind of a wild month. I mean, everything happened so quickly. It really just felt like it happened in the span of a couple of days. And it's funny, you know, I had this episode ready to go two weeks ago, but then sort of went back to the drawing board and thought I'd wait till the dust settled just because... Um, just the way that everything was kind of moving around here. So, and I wanted to get you guys the most up-to-date information I could um, by the time this episode was released in your pocket. So, um, let's go ahead and jump into some headlines, and we'll get to the bigger discussions for the episode. Um, let's start with the weather. Something a little lighter than we built to the heavy stuff. Um, the latest batch of rain uh, we got over this recent weekend is probably the last that we're going to get for a while. Uh, so that's according to weather experts, which I guess nowadays are. People who get paid to do what our apps can tell us. Um, either way, I got love for my weatherman. I didn't mean it like that. Um, you know, get used to your windshield wipers getting a little dormant and the grass starting to turn a little brown and uh, ski conditions to slowly and steadily kind of wane out um, as the spring kind of hits us full force. Um, Napa Valley College has been exploring housing for a few hundred faculty and staff members. Um, which is, I think, a very positive thing. It's it really seems like it's building some momentum, and there's some real uh, legit discussion happening. You know, they've kind of dabbled with it over the years, but um, I think that'll be a great thing. Just kind of considering a lot of the related things I'm about to touch on. Um, you know, the Napa County population grew by less than one percent. Um, it was, in fact, it was 0.21 percent. Just 312 uh, people moved into Napa County between July 2015 and July 2016. Um, which I think for perspective, um, you know, Sonoma County, it rose by 0.3%. Solano County rose by 1.3%. Lake County declined by 0.5%. Um, the state typically uh, grows at 0.9% per year um, in different areas. So it's um, the reason it's kind of significant is because it's, it's a little indicative of the housing issues that have been going on here and the, the affordability of them and just kind of how it's turning off. Uh, you know, new families, young families that might want to move here, prospective citizens um, in general. And the real repercussion of that tends to be, you know, the education system. Um, since since enrollment is kind of stifled a little bit and hasn't grown uh, like it used to, um, there's a really interesting element in the story that Jennifer Huffman wrote, our business editor, um, just talking about how a, a typical student enrolled at a Napa County school tends to generate between 8,000 uh, or more sometimes than 22,000 in local funding uh, for the school that he or she attends. And so obviously, you know, when you lose a kid, you lose some funding and that affects uh, the overall education of the students within the school. So, um, you know, if you're, if you live in Napa, I think it's something you might want to pay attention to and just sort of the sustainability of the education system, um, as long as there's housing issues going on. Uh, in transportation, uh, I mean, if you drive through Napa Valley and you're familiar with just how terrible the infrastructure and the roads are, uh, it's been kind of, you know, you're constantly playing games, avoiding potholes and stuff when you're driving on these two lane highways and stuff. So um, the the federal uh, Napa County is going to receive six point four million dollars in federal funding, uh, which is going to include uh, one of the transportation products that I think people have been kind of perking up a little bit about, which is a uh, roundabouts on Silverado Trail, which will kind of help reduce 
some of the congestion, some of the issues some people have at rush hour specifically, just getting even onto the road. Um, so that'll be good. Um, for perspective, which is kind of interesting, there were 14 uh, different projects that the local cities here in the Valley is submitted, uh, totaling $27.6 million. So only getting a fraction of that, but I think it's still just any kind of positive you can get out of improving infrastructure and roads here, I think is something to be celebrated. Uh, pivoting a little bit to one of the more serious topics, uh, specifically immigration and um, the population within Napa Valley. There's a lot of undocumented immigrants that work here. It's just kind of a fact of the of the agriculture industry and having such a large labor force required in a community like this. And um, I would really encourage everybody to check out a story written by Maria Sestito about um, undocumented immigrants and some of the fears and anxiety some of them individually in our backyard are having. Um, she talks to a couple families and some lawyers, and it's just really well-sourced and, and a little eye-opening and kind of puts in perspective um, just some of the, the hurdles that some of these people are going through. And, you know, with, a, with an issue like immigration, you kind of tend to lose sight of the faces and the people who are actually affected by such a polarizing thing. And so um, it's, it's really important to keep that perspective. So I'd really encourage you guys to check out that story um, related to that. Um, Henry wrote a story about proposed legislation that would help um, Napa County farm worker housing. There's three different centers uh, in the valley that provide uh, housing for farm workers. And there are two bills being uh, put forward by um, Bill Dodd, who is our Democratic representative here, and in, in Winters, uh, Cecilia Aguiar Curry. Um, they are basically trying to help get more state funding for the housing. And uh, by doing that in two different ways, um, one of them is to up the per acre self-assessment from vineyard owners. So basically kind of how they, the price at which they um, value their land um, has a direct impact on how much, um, how much funding goes in locally uh, to these houses. Uh, it's a little dense, but um, uh, essentially if Assembly Bill 317 passed, it would channel up to $250,000 in matching state funds uh, to the housing authority here in Napa County, which operates the centers. And um, I mean, obviously, if you're increasing uh, the per acre assessment, that means that the rent will go up per dollar um, as it's accepted. Um, but obviously, uh, I think the, the workers pay, it, it balances out essentially. So it's, it's, it's a good thing. Uh, it's something interesting, worth celebrating. Um, so take a look at that story if you have some time just to kind of uh, understand sort of what undocumented immigrants are going through. And then also just what the farm workers uh, here who rely on this housing are, are, are going to hopefully get um, if this bill passes. So now comes the heavy stuff. And before I get into the police shooting, um, I do have to talk about, or I feel like I just need to just sort of tell you kind of where I'm coming from when it comes to police brutality. It's, it's an issue that I have struggled with over the past few years and not like on a personal level, like I've been a victim of police brutality. I mean, I've had some brushes, but it's, it's more, it's more about just the, the, the level of empathy that I feel and I struggle with it. It's, I very much feel things at a deeper level than I think a lot of other people do. And it's, it's, it could be one of my better traits and it also might be one of my flaws. Um, cause I just can't separate myself from what's happening to people that I don't even know, but it kind of reached a tipping point for me last summer. It was that first week in July when Philando Castile and Alton Sterling were killed in the same week. And then both of their videos went viral and it really felt like the racial divide was as wide as it had been in a, in a minute. And it culminated with that shooting in Dallas where that U.S. Army Reservist opened fire on police at a protest. And um, it, it just it got to this point where I just couldn't focus on anything. I couldn't work. 
Um, so I just checked out and I went down to San Francisco and I marched with Black Lives Matter. Not so much because I just was, you know, I, I needed to protest or something like that. Like or I needed some sort of therapy moment. It was more because I just felt like I needed to understand uh, what people on the ground were saying, what they were feeling, and really just get a sense of like what people really thought was the best way to do something. And the disappointing part of that was I realized how convoluted the message is. I mean, you have guys who are there, you know, and they're very militant and they're anti-white in every way. You have the, you know, the hippies, the peace and love and understanding. And then you have the uh, the people who are like, let's go through politics and affect change. And, you know, it's just like there's no there's no specific leader, I think. And that's one of the problems, I think, with uh, gaining equality, especially for uh, black people in this country is that there isn't like a, uh, there isn't someone on the front lines. Like, you know, in the civil rights movement, you had Martin Luther King, you had Malcolm X and you had all these different people in between, but you, at least you had these two clear cut leaders kind of, kind of honing in on the message. Whereas now it's like, there's so many different ways to go about it and so many little tiny organizations and everybody's got their own way of going about it. And it hasn't really led to anything. And now I'm kind of rambling, but, um, there was a police shooting here in Napa and uh, it involved a man named Noel Aaron Russell. Um, he was 23 years old, um, by all accounts a drifter that had come into the, come into Napa sometime over the past year, um, was wanted on a warrant. And uh, Maria put together a story just kind of um, talking to witnesses and just figuring out kind of what went down that day and um, piecing together a little bit about this man's life. And um, so I guess the day of the incident, he there were a bunch of different 911 calls, people talking about a, a man wielding a knife and scaring people at the Home Depot near Soskal Avenue. And um, so the police responded. There was a confrontation. Um, one of the witnesses uh, cited in her story, um, two of them actually corroborated this. They said, uh, he said, shoot me, mother effers, um, before three to four shots were fired. And... Um, you know, that was essentially it. You know, he reached into his jacket pocket and he, he tried to go after these, after these police, you know, kind of lunged at him was what one of the witnesses said. And the police opened fire and they killed him. And the, the part that I think is kind of what sticks out immediately is, you know, that, that adage about, you know, don't bring a knife to a gunfight. You have a man who you have a history with. Um, he's got a knife. You're not sure what he has in his jacket, but the, the de-escalation process was so ineffective that it led to this uh, massive escalation where they're opening fire on this guy. And, and the question uh, raised by uh, Noel Russell's younger brother, who Maria also got to talk to, uh, was like, if you know a guy is high or crazy, then you should know how to handle the situation. He said, quote, they, the police, should be trained to take him down somehow. You have a taser for a reason. Why not use that instead of using something to permanently kill someone and take them out? And I think that's the biggest takeaway from this story is, is, is the training there was the situation this intense and this, uh, it really necessitated a gun being fired, especially when there's two officers and a third that respond to a single man with a knife. And, uh, I think that's a very reasonable question, you know, and, and this in Noel's life, it's, it's a really sad story. You know, he's, he grew up in foster care. His mom was a drug addict and, um, you know, had him when she was on drugs. So, um, you know, Eric, uh, his younger brother kind of quoted, uh, that said, you know, he said drug addiction was quoted in his blood. And so it's, you know, he was a, you know, still, he was able to kind of go through really effective change uh, as he got older. And, and, uh, he was a, you know, high school basketball star at Clayton Valley charter in Concord. And, 
Um, you know, but then eventually, you know, and he even went up to PUC, Pacific Union College up in Angwin and uh, went to school there. And but, you know, family eventually lost touch with him and he sort of fell down a path. And um, I guess it kind of all culminated in this. But, um, you know, the one thing I'm worried about is that um, people read this story and hear about this and kind of congratulate the police and uh, do that by demonizing uh, the victim. And I think it's important to understand uh, who this person was, the circumstances, and be able to address that and objectively look at it before uh, showing any kind of emotion towards the police because they are the people who take care of us, but at the same time, they have to be held to the right standard. And so the subject matter does not get any lighter from that because now I'm going to pivot to Napa High School. And um, I guess I should first start with the the mascot change and potential of it. Um, rather than getting into like, you know, being for or against it, because obviously there are prototypical arguments you could make for either side if you're for it. Um, it's because you're supporting the Native American people and recognizing the struggle that they've been through. If you're against it, it's because you're, you know, you're an alumni, you're true to Napa and, uh, you know, the tradition and, you know, the character hasn't been involved in, in athletics in a long time. Um, I don't know what the right way is to go about it, but what I will tell you um, there's a public comment period open at the school board meeting on April 6th uh, from 6 to 7 p.m. Um, you can kind of go and voice your opinion and let, uh, let the educators and the people with the power to make this happen uh, know how you feel. Um, and they'll make a decision by April 20th, two weeks later. Um, so in the next episode or two, I'll probably uh, get to address whether that changed or not. Um, let's talk about the hazing incident. And uh, in the first episode of Register Radio, I had Howard Yoon and Maria Sestito on, and we talked about, um, just because at the time we didn't have all the details we have now, but we, we talked about bullying and hazing and the culture of it and just sort of, you know, bigger picture sense of it on a macro level. And um, over the past month, uh, a lot has happened and a lot has been made public, uh, mostly due to the fact that um, one of the expulsion hearings for a student named Johnny Torres, uh, quarterback of the JV football team, uh, his expulsion hearing was, they chose to make it public on, by request of his parents and the, the attorney, uh, representing his family. And, uh, so a lot of this stuff has been kind of put into print and it's been circulating more and more. And, um, you know, rather than just kind of getting into what was done and said, um, I will say that he is still awaiting decision. Um, as our latest report has it, um, they haven't decided yet. Um, two students have been expelled, um, a host of other have been suspended. Uh, the police investigation concluded and they recommended to the district attorney charges uh, ranging from misdemeanors to felonies uh, for, I believe it was 14 and 15 students and one coach. Um, so the, I think that's kind of the next phase is whether or not the district attorney is going to move forward. And I'm not sure how uh, quickly they are trying to do that. Um, what I will say, though, and and before I even get to my opinion part, also um, Troy Mott, um, the most winningest football coach in Napa High history, um, has resigned <clears throat> as the football head coach. Uh, it was kind of a, a a letter floated around to the Napa High community um, from the administration. You know, they kind of highlighted and kind of wanted to control the message and just kind of let people know that. Um, the board and Superintendent Sweeney, they, they wanted Troy to remain as a head coach, but um, there was one element of the kind of the discussions they had that Troy was not on board with. It was the fact that he wouldn't have autonomy in hiring his staff back um, because they were basically telling everybody on the staff that they needed to apply and they needed to go through um, a number of different protocols in the interview process that 
um, you know, the district tends to have, I guess, with, um, with bringing on athletics, especially when they're off campus coaches. And, uh, you know, there was a huge uh, wave of support and a lot of emotion uh, following that resignation. Uh, you know, students, you know, walked out of, I walked out of class. Uh, they kind of rallied to lend support to him. He is obviously one of the most recognizable figures um, in Napa High School history and just in, in the community in general. A very well liked guy. Um, I haven't, I never got the chance to really know him too well, but, you know, knowing. Uh, Marty and working as closely with him as I do and just kind of the way he talks about him I, I've just kind of been able to see how how tough it was on him too and he was the one that reported the story so it's um, it's definitely not been easy but I think uh, you know Troy gets to kind of walk out uh, with his character intact regardless of how these allegations and things kind of play out so um, you know on a personal level for him I think he's in a better place uh, just kind of cutting ties and moving forward with the next chapter of his life um, I think the the hardest part for me is that it's it's just the the way in which um, people have kind of gone public um, with this story, and I think to to assume the facts um, of the actual incident have been laid out already, like what's been reported in our stories, and uh, it that cannot be it'd be naive to think that's actually what happened, because um, to me it's you know follow the discipline. You just had a the most successful football coach in the school's history resign. Uh, his entire staff went with him in a move of solidarity. Uh, you have all these students suspended. You have two expelled, a third one pending. And and to think that it was just as simple as horsing around or it was, you know, kid kids wearing uh, all their clothes and poking each other in the butt. I mean, whatever it was, um, it wasn't that. Uh, and I, again, I think it's naive to assume that that is the extent of it. Um, because that is only what's, that's only what's been made public at this point. And, uh, so, you know, I think there are a lot of people that might end up on the wrong side of this story, uh, just because of how publicly they're choosing to go about voicing their opinions and their angst and their disapproval of the board and the administration. And, uh, you know, it's, it's to me, I think it's, you know, the best route here is, you know, I understand that you might not be happy with what's going on, but to go after the people who are enforcing the discipline, I think is not the right way. And, uh, you know, cause you got to assume and you got to expect that these are not people who enjoy doing this. It's not something they like to like to do. Um, but it's something they have to do. So, um, with that, uh, let's actually just get, let's take a deep breath. I'll take it with you. This stuff is not fun to talk about, man. I mean, it's like I wish I could have started the podcast with some lighter material, but, uh, you know, it is what it is, man. This is the news. It's the world we live in, and we got to go for it, and we got to push forward and, you know, try to be as, as good as we can in the lives that we lead. So, um, so main discussion in episode two is, uh, is a fantastic one I had with editor Sean Scully. Uh, he came up in the Washington, D.C. area covering politics, eventually did it in Virginia on the local level. And uh, I just wanted to have him on to kind of share some of his background and kind of how he how he, how he came up in that scene, what it's like in terms of access, um, you know, influence that journalism might have in a local government, and also just kind of what he thinks about uh, the, the back and forth between the press and Donald Trump and, and kind of how he views journalism going forward. So it's a fantastic discussion. Uh, really appreciate Sean stopping by. So here is Mr. Scully talking politics and government.
Yeah, I started actually, I grew up in the DC area. My dad was a, uh, in the State Department. And so my family, I mean, politics was what we talked about around the, um, around the dinner table. Uh, national politics and you know the news in the DC area is all about Congress and the president and all that kind of stuff so I grew up on that so I was a political junkie uh, went off to college and I wanted to be on radio though I didn't want to be a journalist I just wanted to be on radio I wanted to play rock and roll and be cool and do yeah. that kind of stuff and uh, that just didn't work out so I wound up cooking and I love to cook it was great it was a great job but I hate the hours so I was sort of confronted with this choice do I take it seriously do I be a chef or do I find something else to do? And what that other thing to do, I don't know what it was supposed to be. So I, I looked in the local newspaper and saw this little tiny ad looking for a reporter um, for, for a weekly newspaper. I said, ah, I can do that because I worked in my high school news, newspaper and I had some history papers that I'd written. So I grabbed that and put on my coat and tie and went up and, and for, for an interview. And uh, I got the job because I was on time and my predecessor had been fired for being late chronically. So I got this job. And all of a sudden, I was in this place where uh, people didn't really care what Congress did. I was sort of taken aback. It was this little tiny rural county in Virginia, and people didn't care what their congressman did. I mean, they would go to his town hall, but they didn't really care what happened in Washington. They didn't really care what happened in Richmond. They did care a lot about what their town council did or what their county board of supervisors did. That mattered a whole lot to them. And I was just fascinated by it. I mean, I was hooked right from, from that moment and realize that politics really does affect people. I mean, Congress affects people, sure. You know, it sets your tax rates and decides if you go to war and all of those things. But if you think about it, what really, really matters to you is what your local school board decides or what kind of tax rate the Board of Supervisors sets or, you know, it, elections matter, the votes of Board of Supervisors matter. And so I just got totally hooked on it uh, and did that for a while. I eventually, my, my wife got a job up in the D.C. area, so we moved to D.C., and I worked on some local newspapers covering planning commissions. I mean, I, I'm a junkie on um, uh, planning and zoning, believe it or not. It's, it sounds tedious, but if you think about it, the shape of this community right now is affected by what planning commissions did 20, 30, 50 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. And, and every decision they make now, that building's going to stand for 100 years. So it really matters. So I got really into that. Uh, I kind of got pulled by money into covering Congress. You know, they, my, the newspaper I was working for paid more on the national desk, and the, editor, the managing editor really wanted me to cover Congress. So I, I went and did that. And, and I loved it. It was great. It's a really fun job. I mean, you're, you're on, on Capitol Hill with... 535 people whose egos are enormous and they can't shut up and they can't keep a secret and they're weird personalities and bizarre fights and so it was a lot of fun to do and I got to do the White House as well but uh, I still always had this nagging feeling like what we're doing here in Washington doesn't matter because yeah. I knew what people out in the out in the field really think um, so I, I kind of was not really comfortable being in the kind of the Washington press corps, because I kind of felt like half of what we were doing or more just didn't make any difference. It was all kind of navel gazing. Well, I don't want to date you, but like when when were you in Washington? Uh, I was there. I was there. Uh, started covering Congress in 1998, uh, and so I was there during the Clinton impeachment. In fact, I was in the White House press press room on the day the the House Judiciary Committee voted to impeach him, wow. which was pretty intense. Yeah. Uh, and so then I covered the Clinton impeachment trial in the Senate, which 
Sounds kind of cool, but it was horrible. It was horrible. Everybody was in a terrible mood. All of these reporters from all over the country who didn't know how to cover Congress and didn't know the sort of written and unwritten rules for how you do things parachuted in yeah. and made life difficult for those of us who actually were working and living there. Yeah. Um, and then, of, <clears throat> of course, it was just, it was tawdry. It was ugly. It was exhausting. Uh, I was working for a conservative newspaper that hated the Clintons, and so trying to sort of maintain my integrity while still maintaining my job right. uh, was challenging. And so that was over, and then I got to go do the 2000 presidential race, and I started out covering the McCain campaign, which was actually really, really interesting. Uh, and then when that flamed out, I, I rotated on and off with another guy doing the Bush campaign, uh, which was interesting also. But I was just burned out by, you know, between the impeachment trial and the um, and the presidential race and then the sense that maybe what I was doing was not really mattering to most people. Right. Uh, my wife and I just kind of got to the point like we were sick with Washington and we packed up and moved to, we sold our house. We had a nice house on Capitol Hill, sold it and moved to Los Angeles kind of for the hell of it. Uh, and I, I was really lucky to fall into two jobs, they're part-time jobs, uh, teaching journalism at Cal Poly Pomona, and uh, and freelancing for Time Magazine. It turns out that the, the new bureau chief there wanted somebody who could turn around a story on a daily basis because all of his writers were magazine writers, and they were like, oh, can I have an extra week to do this? And he needed somebody. He could just say, get me this story and get it to me in five hours. So he he had me do that. Yeah. And that was a lot of fun. I mean, one of the things that I am most fascinated by, because I think you could probably speak to this as well as anybody, is the, how access has changed over the last you know, 15, 20 years, I think uh, it probably a lot of it has to do with technology and the way that we decipher information and things like that. But just, I mean, what was what was the access like back then, you know, when you were covering it's, Clinton? and everything? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, it was, it, when I was there, it was already kind of locked down in the White House. I mean, they, the, the president didn't just wander in. Uh, and I talked to some of the older White House reporters and they said there had been a time when the president would just come into the press office, or you could walk through the, the press office, you know, where the, 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 the White House staff is, and go right into the West Wing. I mean, you could never wow. just wander into the Oval Office, but you could just wander in and talk to the to his chief advisors or see the president in the hallways. And they uh, had to be on at any time if you needed to ask a question. Yeah. I mean, they were they were there, and the reporters could just wander in. By the time I got there, and I, I apparently began to tighten up a little bit under Reagan and, and the first Bush, from what I hear. But the Clintons really locked it down, especially once the sort of the scandals began to build. Yeah. That they just locked it down. And from what I understand from my friends who are still doing it, it's now to the point where you really can't do anything. I mean, you're locked in the press office. There was some of that when I was there, that you would just be locked in the press office and you just couldn't do anything. Yeah. Uh, and apparently it's gotten worse. The interesting thing is, uh, whereas that's true on the national level, on the local level, access has almost increased, if anything, because all of these local officials have cell phones, uh, they have Facebook accounts, they have Twitter accounts. Uh, I mean, just in the same way that any of us are in business now, you know, your boss, I can I can text you anytime uh, I need you. Um, same is very much true for the public servants. So in, in, in a weird way, uh, I have more access now to people I'm covering than I did 25 years ago when I was a small town newspaper reporter. Do you feel like at the local level, like accountability is more... 
I guess it, it's more easier to act upon because I guess it, when you're in this level in Washington, D.C., I mean, it's almost like the buffer between what you're reporting and how it affects these people at the top. Oh, yeah. It's got to be so much. I mean, Absolutely. The spectrum is huge. Uh, I mean, the, Washington is, is great um, for the big story, you know, Watergate. But let's be honest, most reporters... Well, you could you could live two or three lifetimes and never have a story that even begins to approach that. Yeah. Um, but for impact, uh, local local journalism can't be beat because uh, you write a story and people in your community are reading it, including the board of supervisors or the city council or whatever. Uh, they read the letters to the editor. They read the editorials. Um, so we can really make a big difference, or, or maybe not even a big difference, sometimes just a little difference. And I find that really rewarding when just a little thing happens and, and we've made a difference. And some phone call we made or some editorial we wrote made a difference. Whereas on the national level, you know, if you're at the Washington Post or the New York Times, maybe, but by and large, most people don't have that kind of, of power or reach. And even if you do have that kind of power and reach, what are you going to do? Drive policy? You know, right. it's, maybe you uncover a scandal. That's where you would have a real impact. But your sort of average everyday story about process on Capitol Hill isn't going to change them. Whereas a, an average everyday story about process on the Board of Supervisors, if if they decide that something they did embarrassed them and you're reporting it in the news, they're going to change that. I mean, you know, I, I think of an example. I, I up in, When I was the editor of the Weekly Calistogan, uh, the local school board up there appointed a new member to fill out a vacant term, uh, and they they did the vote in a way that violated the Brown Act. I mean, it wasn't serious, but it, it was a technical violation of the Brown Act. And I wrote an editorial saying that they had done it. They weren't happy, but you know what? The chairman of the board, of su- I mean, the chairman of the uh, school board, um, called a meeting, an emergency meeting, and they redid the vote. Wow! And it was just—it's a little tiny thing, but it, and it wasn't that. that um, you know, that I was so great or I was really so glad that um, it wasn't gotcha. You know, I, I was not trying to get the Board of Supervisors. What I, I mean, the, the, the trustees. What I was actually worried about was, could this cast doubt on the legitimacy of this new member? Yeah. Right? If she was wrongly uh, wrongly voted in, could it invalidate her position? It left her in a very bad position. So they redid it. And, you know, she there was no question about the legitimacy of her position. Uh I felt good about that. Yeah, I mean, because that's basically what you were trying to get when you were covering politics in the beginning is some actual tangible impact in the way that it operates. Have you seen it? I mean, how do you compare, you know, the Virginia, you know, local government that you were covering there to Napa? I mean, how does how does the way that this mm-hmm. one operate and the mm-hmm. way it affects the, the population? Have you seen? Oh, um, it's 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 really similar. I mean, they're 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 doing the same kinds of things, zoning, planning. Um, the one thing is California, and it's it's not unique to Napa, California has, it's not the craziest local government system I've ever seen. There are worse ones, but it, it kind of is a little crazy. You know, In you have, way. well, I mean, you've got counties, right? Uh, but you've got all these little sub-districts and you've got all these, you know, like the Napa City Council has no influence whatsoever on the Napa sewer system. Because it's a different, it's a it's a different political entity. It's a it's an authority in itself. The board of supervisors has essentially no uh, connection to the school districts. And we've got what uh, three, four, maybe five different school districts if you count some of the really little ones. And the board of supervisors has nothing to say about it. Um, typically, back east, not every state, but a lot of states, certainly Virginia, uh, the county is the starting point. 
so that the school board is appointed by the Board of Supervisors. The school district boundaries are the same as the county boundaries. Uh, you know, your local utilities are run by boards appointed by the General Assembly or the, uh, or the Board of Supervisors or the town council, depending on it. But the lines of authority are much, much clearer, and the economies of scale are greater. Because, you know, you don't have this thing where you have five different police departments uh, or, you know, five different school systems. You have a county sheriff, a town police department, a board, a school board, and that's it. I mean, how much is that just a product of California being such a progressive state that it kind of over government? Yeah, it's you know, just it's it. just culture. You know, yeah. I mean, one of the funny things about it, I, I was completely blown away. The first time I lived in California, I, uh, I did some research on the, I was working on some kind of story. I can't even remember the details, but I was doing some research on, on um, California's constitutional history uh, through the initiative process. And I realized that California hasn't, hasn't revised its constitution in a con- comprehensive way since something like 1879. Wow. Uh, and yet every single, every single election, we're amending the constitution. These initiatives are constitutional amendments. And so California's constitution is archaic. It's contradictory. It's jumbled with junk. It's like your DNA. You know, yeah. it's just got all this junk in it that nobody knows what to do with. Uh, and so I think that's that's part of it. I mean, California's as I mean, California's as big as the distance between like Atlanta and Boston. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's just it's a huge, huge state. And so I think it's partly that it's big and diffuse. Partly it's got this initiative system that simply doesn't exist in any of the states east of the Mississippi. Uh, and so it's very easy to kind of add these layers of reform and change. Uh, and just something about the the culture of California has created these weird little independent authorities, um, and it, it makes it hard to do business. Yeah. Well, I wanted to ask you about just kind of the way that Trump is sort of, his relationship with the media is devolving and how he's kind of starting to limit access in a way, because I think it's it's clear that all these leaks, I mean, the, this specific executive branch right now is so leaky that to like try and stop the leaks, they'll have meetings to, you know, institute phone checks, but then information about that phone check meeting gets yeah. out. And so it's like, it's so porous right now. And it seems like the way that Trump thinks to stop those leaks from happening is to leave out the institutions and newspapers that are trying to cover and report about them. I'm just curious, you know, how do you kind of reconcile that? What's What's funny about that actually is the very best White House reporters I ever met hardly ever came into the White House. I mean, Peter Baker, for example, who um, who is now at the uh, is he at the New York Times now. Um, I think he was at the Washington Post at the time. We hardly ever saw him in the press room because he would work outside it. You know, he didn't need it because it's there's a certain sort of kabuki theater to the White House. You yeah. know, they have this morning. Uh, you guys probably have maybe heard about the morning gaggle, they call it, yeah. which got in the news because uh, Sean Spicer, the press secretary, pointedly didn't invite the uh, New York Times and the Post and some other people. Um, that's been going on a long time. You know, it's sort of like the morning. It's not on camera. It's the morning meeting where the press secretary gets in his office and kind of tells you what the agenda of the day is and you can fire questions at him. But that was highly ritualized, you know, and it's and you're talking to the press secretary, right? The press secretary may or may not know anything about what's actually happening in, in the Oval Office. Um, so in a sense, I think uh, it's not going to hurt the, the good White House reporters or the ones whose bosses don't want them to, to sit there all day in the press room uh, and wait to be spoon-fed. Uh, and there are, I mean, there are a lot of good White House reporters who do use the press room, but they use the same tactic. They're not sitting there waiting for the press secretary to come out and, you know, give them, given the story on the platter. It's more like to see, like, what is the public message today from yeah, the specific um, issue. Yeah, and, and, and they're making calls, they're talking to people 
inside the administration, people close to the administration. Um, and I, I get the sense, I mean, I'm not close enough to it. I've still got friends who are back there, but I haven't talked in intimate detail to them about this. But I get the sense that two things are happening in Washington now, just based on my experience. One is that the Trump people themselves are leaking. And I think it's a reflection of his personality. You know, he, he, he talks a lot. You know, we, we know that. He talks a lot. And I think he surrounds himself with people who talk a lot. And he's also, like many presidents, he, he, he favors this multiple power center thing where you have different rival groups. Franklin Roosevelt was famous for that, where he would set people against each other. Um, well, that you know, causes leaks as one faction decides to try to torpedo the other faction. Who are they going to call, right? They rail against the Washington Post or the New York Times. But if you really want to make sure that that you know, idiot down the hallway you want to get rid of looks stupid, who's the best way to do it? Is the New York Times or the Washington right. Post? So I think there's a lot of that going on. Uh, then I think there's an awful lot going on from the established bureaucracy which I think has no idea what to do. You know, they, they don't, they're, they're frightened by Trump. They don't understand it. They don't understand, I mean, there's a lot of positions open, sort of mid-level appointment positions that are open, so there's no leadership. And so I think a lot of the establishment, sort of the, the bureaucracy, uh, particularly in the uh, um, intelligence agencies, I think some of the leaks are coming from them because they, they are generally, genuinely alarmed by what they're seeing or just don't understand what they're seeing. Yeah. And there's no leadership to kind of tell them don't do that. So, I mean, it kind of seems like there's like this tone of optimism to it. And I think I've heard this from other people who cover Washington, too, is that there's it's almost like a, the Obama administration was so good at providing information and kind of working with the media, not saying that they were great with it by any means, but they I think there's probably this level of comfortability that journalists who were in the the White House kind of got when to you know, just take what he's saying at face value, work with that, people eat it up, and that's the end of your day for a lot of people, right. whereas yeah. now it's like you kind of got to go back to these conventional methods of reporting again that a lot of these White House journalists maybe got a little, you know, they kind of atrophied a P little bit. Yeah, potentially it could be a golden age for, for White House reporters right now. Um, the, only, the only thing that worries me about that is this sort of talk of enemies of the people. I mean, I think by and large people discount that, and I think it's a lot of hyperbole. And yet, unfortunately, that could get somebody hurt. You know, that, that's what really worries me is that it could get somebody there hurt. It could get somebody here hurt. Yeah. You know, if somebody takes that seriously and, and decides that the journalists of the Napa Valley Register or the Washington Post or whatever are really the enemies of the people, that's pretty scary. But provided it doesn't get unhinged like that, uh, potentially it's a good time for journalists because I think people are realizing the value of journalists. And God knows everybody's become a news junkie yeah. in the last—I mean, I heard a story on KQED uh, as I was driving into work this morning where they were talking to managers of local of area businesses uh, about um, productivity. You know, are you losing productivity? Are people getting, you know, spending time reading political news or talking about political news in the break room kind of thing? And they were t talked to a whole bunch of different people who said, oh, yeah, absolutely. And and we can't really stop them because what do you do? You, know, you make people shut up. This is they're, they're possessed by this. Yeah. And um, it really kind of struck me to the degree to which people are just on their phones constantly like, oh, my God, what happened next? It's, it's this drama going on. And so th that's good for journalism because where do you get that kind of information? From journalists. Right. And so I think people... Um, I think people, it's reawakening people to the value of, of journalism, even if it's in an, a somewhat negative sense. I mean, there are people who are criticizing us and other publications, you know, you're liberal, you don't like Trump or whatever. Yeah, but they're reading us and they're thinking critically about what we're doing and they're picking up the phone and calling and talking about it. Um, so 
maybe it's a good thing. Yeah. Well, that's good to hear, at least, that people are actually paying attention to what we're doing. When I oh, did yeah. for a period in time, especially when I was coming up in journalism and people were kind of looking at me at, you know, I go to parties and I'd be like, yeah, you know, I'm a journalism major and I kind of get this, like, I'd have to go through these three questions every time <laughs> just to kind of like tell people that like, well, yeah, I get that, but I want to do this and I have a passion for this and this is why. And so it's kind of almost good that it's like validating in some ways, I think the efforts of people like me and those who kind of came before me that, you know, laid this foundation of sticking with the process and not so much as kind of giving into the idea that we have to go for the ratings and the entertainment value that I think a lot of people kind of get lost in. So yeah, it's, it's good to see that. Yeah, it's easy to it is easy to get lost in clickbait, and we we try to have a nice balance between page views and and sticking with the old ways. What's what's interesting, you know, people have talked about journalism is dying. Well, journalism isn't dying; it's the business model that funded it. You know, for three hundred years, newspapers and then later radio and TV had a monopoly on advertising. Right, it was the only way you could reach your audience is to buy an ad, and the internet has just blown that away. So what? It isn't that journalism's dying, it's the business model. We haven't figured out the new business model. And so I've been sort of trying to say that uh, older guys like me will hopefully teach younger guys like you the old ways, and then younger guys like you can figure out how to pay for it so you can keep it going. Yeah. So I, I kind of feel like my generation's this weird bridge between what we knew for hundreds of years and then whatever journalism's going to be in 50 years. I don't know, I really can't tell you, I can guess. But I can't tell you what journalism is going to look like at the at the end of your career. Uh, but I have a lot of faith in your generation of journalists. To somebody's going to figure it out because it's important, and and there's money to be made in it somehow. Uh, I don't know the way, but somebody will figure it out. So I, I have confidence. You know, journalism journalism is important, and I, it's interesting when I talk to uh, I go to high schools here, uh, and there are a number of kids who will come up to me and talk to me and say, I really want to be a journalist. So I think people. Even younger people who re probably have barely ever touched a paper newspaper realize the value of it and want to be involved in it. And it's just fun, you know? It's, I try to communicate to people just how much fun this job is. It's, it's, it's a terrible job in many ways, but it's also like the greatest <laughs> job in the world. I say it beats working. Yeah. You know, it's, it's just a fun job. So I, I hope, I'm glad to see people your age are excited. Uh, I mean, we have a number of younger journalists here, you and Maria Sestito and other people who've come here and been really excited. You guys are going to do great in the future, and I'm really proud to have you for a little while that we can hopefully teach you the old ways, and then you go off and pass it along. That's probably a good place to end it while it's on a positive and right <laughs> note about my Yeah, while well, I'm feeling good. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Sean. My thanks again to Sean coming on and uh, just a fantastic discussion interesting dude it's always a pleasure to talk to him and kind of pick his brain about stuff like that because he has a great way of just kind of presenting it um, but let's transition to wine um, I have Henry Lutz on our wine reporter new guy on the block um, he's been covering it for us and you know, focusing on the business side of it but um, just kind of an interesting note about Henry's reporting um, he kind of takes that everyman perspective to it because he admits you know he's not like a super uh, intelligent wino or anything like that, but he um, has a great way of just kind of taking complex issues and packaging packaging them in a way that's really easy for us to understand, which is, you know, at, just kind of at the heart of journalism. So, you know, shout out to Henry for being a good reporter. Um, one of the questions that I've had throughout the winter and all the heavy rains that have come through is just sort of how all this water accumulation has affected grape growing and uh, the winemaking process. So he wrote a story 
um, a couple weeks ago just about, you know, what vintners and winemakers and what their thoughts are about it. So we talk about that um, among a couple other things. So uh, here is me and Henry Lutz talking B-Note. I guess, how did you even like start getting your bearings like on the wine beat? A lot of help from uh, from Sean and from Dave Stoneberg up at the St. Helena Star. They invited me to a tasting panel back when I started, one of the ones that Dave puts on and yeah. started meeting people from there and would reach out to people for stories and stuff that was going on and it just kind of snowballed. Now I'm still working on my Rolodex and just beefing that up and yeah. I meet new people every single day. What was what was your like wine background like before you started here? Did, did you drink a lot of wine? Like little? <laughs> nope, very little. And the way Sean pitched the uh, position to me was that he wanted someone who didn't really, who was coming from it with the angle of the average reader. Yeah. Like, you know, obviously I'd heard of Napa and was familiar with wine kind of but I didn't know you know many of the players or anything here and uh I have definitely learned my wine knowledge part of my brain has just ballooned exponentially it tends to happen here because you'd be surprised just kind of like social circles gatherings things like that yeah especially being someone that's living in Napa Valley or spending time here and not being in the industry you tend to like just pick up really like detailed nuanced information that a, a lot of people elsewhere that just enjoy wine as like a hobby mm-hmm. uh, don't even get like I feel like dinner parties and all the friends that I've made like, that just here in Napa most of them tend to be in the industry so it's like when they get together they all start nerding out about wine and then you just kind of pick up on all this stuff that you never really yeah. thought you would have ever gotten it's just uh, by diffusion or something yeah, yeah. But I, I wanted to ask you specifically because obviously the like the rain has been a big story just in an, in and of itself. I mean we're out of the drought now, mm-hmm. uh, which is I think kind of crazy because you know a year ago people were looking at it like this insurmountable thing, and now we're out of it. But, but when you drive through Silverado and you see like vineyards flooded and you know I've seen pictures on social media of like winemakers on kayaks going through the vineyards. This is kind of like a joke, but it's crazy that it's got to that level. I mean. Uh, you wrote about the uh, kind of what it means and sort of how you know wineries view having this much water. I guess it'd probably be good just to ask, like, what does all this water do for someone that's growing grapes? Yeah, the funny thing is, I asked that question to a couple of different growers up and down the valley, and one of the best responses I got was, "We're not going to be able to turn all this water into wine." <laughs> it's actually the lead of the story. Yeah, and uh, that. It kind of makes sense. I guess my impression going into that story was more water is more wine because the grapes are going to grow more. There's going to be more production. But according to growers, it's really going to depend person to person and vineyard to vineyard and block to block what the growers themselves want because there will potentially be more growth, but they may not necessarily want that. Right. If that makes sense. Whereas on vineyards with less good soil like rocky soil or have shallow roots or whatever then this extra water will be good because they'll get to start off the season with all these extra resources and all the nutrients that they need to make more grapes whereas you know in years prior they may not have made that many right but for vineyards that have been fine 
even during the drought, having all that extra water is kind of unneeded for a lot of people. Um, so it really depends on what you want to do as a grower in terms of production. Yeah, it's it's weird that there's almost like this range of of different ways that could benefit or kind of affect the output because there's wineries that'll, or maybe even specific grapes. I'm, I guess this is probably over our heads when we're talking about it like this, but yeah, but it's kind of like there's there's wineries and types of soils that are going to benefit from it, and there's others that might not want it as much. And sort of like, is there is there a method? Has anybody talked about a way of kind of getting rid of water that they don't need? Um, as far as getting rid of water that they don't need, if there's extra water, well, the guy who it's Frank Leeds up at Frog's Leap Winery up in Rutherford, and he said that uh, basically their soil profile, once they, they got like 35 inches of rain or something, but once they get up to a certain point, then the rest just kind of runs off. Yeah. And they just can't do anything with it. Um, but as far as using, if, if say you don't want your, what people have told me is if you don't want your vines to use all this extra water just from the get-go, then you plant more cover crop to compete with it. So if you drive up and down the valley or over in Carneros and you see just like fields and fields of mustard yeah. growing in the vineyards, and that's that's one of the key like cover crops that I think they use to compete with the vines to take that water so the vines aren't taking more water than the growers want them to. Wow. See, that's something I never really thought about because you see like there's olive trees and different like it's almost like the food elements become like a synonymous thing with wineries now, but it almost seems like it's kind of out of necessity for a lot of these wineries to like take on a new product or something else just because they, they're trying to spread all this water out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think that they're using the mustard yeah. for anything other than that, but yeah, I, I'm... I would be curious to look into it a little bit further and see like what do you do when your vineyard's that flooded. You know, I didn't I didn't ask people, you know, when you have just like a pool basically in your vineyard, what do you do with all of that? Yeah. But I'd be curious to I'd be curious to find out. I mean it might be something interesting to even like follow as the year goes on, just kind of like how does this huge amount of volume of water play out as in the growing season because this is mm -hmm. i mean i guess at this stage in the year like everybody's making sure they're you know everything's planted and ready to go and so if, if you have this excess of water how does that affect the entire growing process the harvest later on in the year because i mean for me as someone that doesn't really necessarily know those kind of like bits of information about wine that's like one of the questions that i have is like how does this now like affect what happens in harvest season yeah and and what i was also told is you know so they'll start with all of this water from the get-go and have all this, all the nutrients that they need, all the resources that they need. But there's so many things that will happen, and this was emphasized by everyone I talked to, there's so many things that will happen throughout the course of the year, all the way up until harvest, that at the end of the day, it's not so much how much water they have going into it, but it will be things like temperature and if bud break happens, now when there's still some morning to go out and there's still frost on your car you know but if blood break happens and there's frost then i guess that could potentially kill them yeah not sure but it's not a good thing is what i've been told and so just stuff like that leading all the way up into like august october when harvest happens that will really decide 
what the vintage, what 2017 is going to taste like. Right. Versus right now, they're, they basically have like a great big green light to work with. They have options. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess if there's one silver lining to you taking this job and not really knowing too much is that you have like all these questions that a lot of beginners and other people that don't know it don't have. So that's, it's good that you're asking these questions. Yeah. And I think that's now I, I see Sean's strategy of, I think I'm able to, instead of getting really detailed and just asking growers really detailed questions, I'm the guy who asks stuff that we don't, you know, the average reader, average wine drinker doesn't no yeah no it's fun man because that's why i enjoy reading your stories because it's like this is this is like the point of view that i would have if i was writing it like because i don't know and this is a question i have and you're the one asking it so i'm glad glad you want doing it man me too thanks for coming on <laughs> thank you henry lutz uh two for two on the discussions this episode both of them are fantastic um i'm going to talk about sports a little bit then we're going to close out the episode um it's springtime so baseball softball tennis uh, track and field all underway so it's you know nice to kind of get back outdoors and cover sports in the you know fresh air again and it's kind of nice it's starting to feel like spring too which is you know leave it to us Californians to bitch about the rain um, but uh, I want to talk about Pacific Union College basketball um, if you've been following me or you follow the register uh, register sports section I should say uh, we've been chronicling their just a magical run the last couple months and this season um, so it'd be probably good just to start with the accomplish- accomplishments themselves and then just talk about sort of how it's happened. Um, PUC won 18 games this year. They won 18 and 7, and that's seven more wins than their best year in school history, which was last year and the year before that when they won 11 games. Um, and it's all been in the three years under Greg Ron, who has now won 40 games in his three years, which is more than the previous seven years combined. So let me let me repeat that again. He has won more games in three years than the previous seven combined. That's how how quickly he's changed the culture at Pacific Union College. And they were able to beat Cal Maritime, who was the five-time defending California Pacific Conference champions. Uh, they beat them three times this year. Uh, they had only beaten them at most once in a season, and that happened last year and the year before, of course, Greg's first two years at PUC. So it's you know clearly a changing of the guard a little bit, but and even if it's not a changing of the guard, it's just a it's just some better competitive equity in the CalPAC conference, um, which is a you know small NAIA conference here on the West Coast, and um, so PUC you know they beat Cal Maritime, they did it um, in the in the championship game on a buzzer beater by Ray Hubbard. Um, it was an amazing shot, just kind of an, an amazing game. They were down ten points at halftime. Uh, they come back, they get it done. A lot of you know just kind of. Magical things had to happen in the last couple of minutes, you know, missed free throws by guys who hit free throws at Maritime and um, just kind of the way it happened. It was also in Vallejo in Cal Maritime's house. So uh, to do it there is also very impressive. They had a big supporting section from England come down for the game. It honestly felt like PUC was a home team the, that those fans were so fired up. So it's good to see um, just kind of those fans, the people of England, just kind of get something like that um, to, you know, celebrate up there because, you know, if you know anything about Angwin, it's a very small town, uh, very much kind of keeps to itself, but they've had just this really remarkable season with this team. And um, so, you know, objectively happy for all of them to kind of have that moment. And um, so I think it's important just to kind of talk about what Greg has brought to this team. Now, PUC is, 
uh, never been world beaters by any means, obviously. And so um, he's, you know, Greg has kind of brought in this specific mold of player, a guy who um, is defensive minded, um, puts the team first over the individual success and is willing just really to just to buy into what he's selling. And, um, you know, I wrote a, I wrote a column earlier this week just kind of about how um, he has changed the culture there um, while respecting the Seventh-day Adventist faith, um, which is very much at the core of everything PUC does. I mean, that is what that school is built on is the Adventist faith. And he has come in an outsider in a lot of ways, and, and just while respecting that faith, he's brought in a lot of really, really talented guys to play into the system. And it, it's crazy, you know, because you're kind of getting, you know, basketball players and guys who maybe aren't, you know, your traditional image of an Adventist um, practitioner to to buy into this school and be okay with, you know, going up here to this place uh, where there, you know, there's one stoplight, there's no cell service if you're with AT&T, so you got to get Verizon. And there's just all these, you know, just all these unique factors that make this city um, its own place. And so to get them to come there, and, and obviously, you know, must be said, Adventist schools provide a fantastic education. So, you know, that kind of makes the, the pitch a little atypical because now you're just saying, hey, if you want a good ed- education and a chance to make something happen with basketball, here's an opportunity. Um, but he's he's gotten these guys, you know, to come together. Uh, he put together this nucleus of guys, Quan Guerrero, Greg Brown, Chad Young, uh, to come in with him his first year, and they've, you know, now uh, played with him to seniors. And he got these guys to just buy into his system and play this pressure defense, uh, transition game, three-point, uh, just attack the basket relentlessly type of type of team. And it's very much, in my opinion, uh, kind of just the way that, you know, the sport itself is changing. You know, you're seeing it with the Warriors, and this is, I think, the trickle-down um, of that style. And just and it's funny, you know. So PUC wins, you know, the Cal Pack. They get to go to the NAIA um, championship tournament, um, which is held in, in Missouri every year. And it's, um, you know, very much is kind of like the – uh, the younger brother version of, of March Madness in the NCAA tournament. Um, so um, PUC gets to go there for the first time, obviously. I mean, just another one of these historic uh, achievements this year. And they go up 26 points in the first half on number one seed Cornerstone, which is a powerhouse in its own right. Been to the tournament 15 times, won it five times, most recently two years ago. So PUC goes up 26 points on this team. And it's, it's kind of just this remarkable thing to watch. I mean, you're seeing these guys buy in with every basket, just kind of the belief that comes with that. And to see them, you know, having this moment on a national stage, uh, they're hitting threes, they're stealing, they're getting out in transition. I mean, it is literally textbook PUC basketball. And they go up and they go into halftime ahead 55 to 30 on, again, the number one seed, a team that was pegged very likely to win this national tournament. And... So they come out at halftime. Cornerstone goes on a quick 5-0 run. Ron calls a timeout, um, kind of settles the guys down, tells them, hey, we're going to do this. He makes some defensive adjustments. Um, but then what kind of takes place, and it also was happening in the first half, is just this – it was almost an inability to defend without fouling. And I'm not saying uh, the refs were necessarily over-calling the game, but I think PUC style is so unique and so uh, rare to – 
the basketball being played at the NAIA tournament. And Greg even mentioned this to me, you know, when he was looking at, at film and just kind of studying Cornerstone. He's like, hey, one advantage we might have is Cornerstone has never played a team like us, and many of them in this bracket haven't. And so it, it was almost like watching, you know, the game of basketball sort of react to this way and this method that PUC was playing. And it, it wasn't able to, to properly, you know, it, it couldn't compute. So they called a lot of fouls, the physical defense, and it took these guys out of their rhythm, everything they were doing in the first half, to kind of take this massive lead into halftime and go up big on this huge team. And you kind of get the feeling that it, it was just sort of like, you know, they were being punished for playing their own brand of basketball. So guys start second-guessing. They don't play as tight defense. And Cornerstone just goes on this amazing, incredible run. Um, I think at one point they outscored them 31-7 to over like a nine-minute stretch in the middle of the half. So, you know, PUC kind of collapsed. The offense goes cold. The defense is afraid to do anything. And Cornerstone just takes advantage. They hit their shots. Uh, they kind of do what they do. And they complete this comeback and win 89-83. And if you're PUC, you're kind of left there like, well, what am I supposed to do with this? If I am, If I'm essentially playing my style and being punished for it, how much of this is actually on me, you know, and how am I supposed to tell the kids and the guys that like, hey, you know, I don't, I honestly, you know, you did what you do and you kind of got punished for it. So you kind of feel bad for PUC in that sense that, you know, maybe the, the game isn't ready, at least in the NAI for that kind of style. But at the same time, I think, you know, to their credit, uh, they have brought a new brand to this league and to the NAIA and, um, they could very much become a powerhouse just because of that if they can continue to bring in guys who fit that system and fit that mold and can shoot the ball well and also play defense in that relentless way. Um, you know, PUC could very much become the next Cal Maritime and win, you know, however many championships in a row. So um, it's it was just a really cool story to see, and it was a lot of fun for me to cover and a nice break from uh, just kind of the prep and local scene. So, you know, shout-out to Greg Ron, shout-out to PUC. Um, you guys are world beaters in my book, and – Um, I sincerely hope you guys are back to do it again next year. So I'm going to try something out here to close the episode. I alluded to it in the beginning. I'm going to bring my call on the other side of the fence to life here in radio form. Uh, Let me know if you dig this or not. Uh, I have no idea how this is going to go. But um, basically, other side of the fence, uh, what I do is I'll take a story that has uh, kind of ties into the real world. So like, say... You know, Colin Kaepernick and his protest or uh, Hope Solo and her domestic abuse trial or Derek Rose and his uh, rape case, you know, things like that, that just kind of cross that bridge and uh, bring a unique sort of perspective to them. Uh, something that I think a lot of people just don't see or might miss, um, because I think uh, in sort of a, you know, let me just uh, pat myself on the back, but I think I have a very unique perspective. Um, you know, being a first-generation immigrant, growing up in the South, going to the University of Georgia, go dogs, and having this uh, kind of strange sort of journey. And uh, so I, I see people and I, I look at things in a very different way. I mean, I have a sociology minor, so it's like I've, I've, I've got a very odd sort of collection of things that make me me. And so I, I, I tend to see things a little better and a little differently than most. Um, so... What struck me this week, like many people, uh, especially in the Bay Area, was the Oakland Raiders leaving Oakland for Las Vegas. And um, I mean, if you're a if you're a Raiders fan, I, my heart goes out to you because this is the third time in 35 years that this team is moving. And I couldn't imagine a scenario uh, where you know someone pulled my team away from me and I didn't have a say in it like that. 
Um, but I mean, I'm not a fan of the Raiders. You know, when the Raiders played the Falcons last fall, I was rooting for the Falcons. I loved that they beat them. Um, but I, you know, in a general sense, I did want to see them win because I, I love Oakland and I love the city and I want its people to have something to celebrate, uh, just like kind of what the Warriors have allowed them to do. And it's, you know, it's the thing I think I really am drawn to is the, the fact that it's so stigmatized and it's so misrepresented and mischaracterized. And if you spend time there, you're, you're one of those lucky people that know that that couldn't be further from the truth. All the, the things that people project on it, um, it's a beautiful city. And I, I've had some of my favorite concerts in that city. I've gone on a bunch of different dates there, some unsuccessful, some successful. Uh, um, but this move kind of triggered something a little differently in me. It, it kind of, you know, brought around again, this introspective moment that I have as a sports writer and, uh, some, and so I'm going to, I guess, kind of share something that I don't really share with a lot of people. And, um, uh, it's basically just kind of my, kind of just how I view sports at the top. And, um, you know, when I made this decision to cover sports, I was in college, uh, you know, it was like the, I was basically combining two things that I, I was good at. One was sports and one was writing. And so I went down the path and I covered, you know, athletics at Georgia and started on the swimming beat and went to baseball, to men's basketball, to football uh, within a matter of two years. So I was good at it. Like I can, I can say like I learned quickly and I figured it out and I got good at it. Um, but as time went on, I, I sort of became jaded to like the whole machine that sort of uh, surrounds the sports world. You know, the, the fact that it's very much at times a distraction uh, from the really important things happening in everyday life. And sometimes that's a good thing. Like we need, we need that reprieve. Like we need to take the edge off somehow when the world becomes a little too intense and sports are perfect for that, but they also, uh, you can lose that balance and it becomes almost the identity of a person. Sometimes, you know, these guys who wear, uh, you know, another man's name on their back, every opportunity they get when they go out in public, it's like this, uh, you know, sometimes I think we lose, uh, perspective on what's important. And I think sports are sometimes responsible for that, but it's, it's so my problem though, is like, it's, uh, y- you know, the machine, uh, which this thing operates, it, it's, it has little appreciation for the guy at the bottom, you know, when you get to this level and even in the media world, and that's where my kind of jaded nature comes from, because I'll be, you know, when I cover these events, I go to the Warriors or I, go, I cover at the NFL or the Super Bowl. I mean, whatever it is, Um, you know, you kind of realize that you were reduced, uh, to a microphone and a media throng and you were just, uh, one in a, in a large, vast sea of people that are potentially writing and covering and doing the same thing as you. And you kind of, that loss of individuality is what makes it kind of unnerving at times. And so, uh, in the same sense, like in a real world sense, like we are compartmentalized and reduced, I think, to just numbers on a page. You know, statistics, uh, a, a little box in an Excel sheet uh, that leads to profit for somebody else. And that's the most disheartening thing about this is that uh, the NFL gives such little a shit about its fans that it's going to move three teams in the span of, what, 15, 16 months? And they're going to do that by ripping out, like, pretty solid and well-supported teams in their communities. And they're going to do it in the name of the dollar. And they are doing it in our face. And it's just, it's, I've gotten to the point where I'm not even sure if I want to watch the NFL anymore, you know? And it might be kind of easy because the Falcons just blew the Super Bowl in the worst way imaginable. But at the same time, it's like, how can we, how can we support something that is so blatantly corrupt and so 
blatantly against our genuine enjoyment and happiness at a, at a base level. I mean, it, it really, you know, when people say uh, the NFL or whatever, you know, insert sport here is a business, uh, the, 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 the depth of that statement is still, I think it's just almost sometimes not even understood because we just hear it and it's like a, it's a way of, uh, rationalizing a decision that makes no sense. But when you look at it at a deeper level, I mean, it is just as corrupt as a government can be. And that's, I think that's the saddest realization is that, you know, it's as much as we love these teams and as much as we invest our, our time and our emotions, uh, at the end of the day, uh, we have little say in like the, the machine and how it moves and how it operates. And, uh, that's really disheartening. And so if you're a Raiders fan, I don't know what to tell you, you know, do you support them? Maybe, you know, cause that's still, you know, at the end of the day, you still are a Raider, but do you, do you, do you support the NFL? I don't know. I don't, I really don't know how to go about it. It's, it's such a strange place to be. And, you know, and if anything, you know, like I said, this introspective moment that I had, it kind of made me appreciate uh, the fact that I get to cover local sports and I don't have to deal with uh, the depth of the emotion that these people in the Bay Area are really feeling right now. Because uh, here, you know, it's it's kind of insulated a little bit. You know, we'll, we'll write about it, we'll report on it, I'll talk about it, but uh, that's it. You know, the next day I'll go to a high school game and I'll get to talk to these people who are really excited to have me there and I'll get to crystallize a moment for this kid and his family. And it's like a very cool thing. And it, it, so it's like, I, it makes me appreciate what I have, but it also makes me kind of sad about uh, the people who don't. And, um, you know, hey, Las Vegas Raiders. I guess that's something we got to get used to. Episode two, uh, thanks for listening. Uh, thank you to Sean Scully for coming on. Uh, thank you to Henry Lutz. Uh, thank you to all of you who listened and stuck around for the ride. Um, you know, a lot of depressing stories and uh, maybe not the uh, the most positive stuff, but it's news you need to hear and it's news you need to know. And I'm happy to be the one to share it. So here's to, uh, here's to a funky outro, a better feeling, and hopefully a more positive third episode. Mm-hmm.